Good morning, Grace Community Church. How's everyone doing today? Good. Oh, Tony, I love the enthusiasm, my man. It's good to be with you guys. I'm Pastor Tannen. For those of you that don't know, I am the very tall children's pastor that works with our elementary students here at Grace. And so it is good to be with you guys uh, this morning. The last six weeks, we have been trekking through a series called Why and What We Believe. And it's been an incredible series a foundational series for us as Christians because as we look into our world today, there has never been a time where it has been more important for us as Christians to know why we believe what we believe and what we believe. It's so, so important for us to understand that in our climate and our world today. There are so many different belief systems that are out there in our world today. There are so many oppositional beliefs that would go very much against a lot of the core doctrines that we would believe as true that we find in our Bibles. And so today, we are going to wrap this series up with something that makes all of the difference. We're going to be seeing how, how and why Jesus is the only way. The thing that we're going to be seeing today is that Jesus is the only way because Jesus is alive. Jesus is the only way because Jesus is alive. I'm not, about, not sure about you guys, but I, am a, I really love movies. I really love watching good movies, specifically superhero movies. And uh, do I have any superhero movie fans out there? Some of you. Oh, here we go. Okay. My favorite superhero is Batman. Batman has always been my, fa- my favorite superhero. A lot of you are like, man, but he doesn't even have any superpowers. Like, how is he? I, I just I love Batman. About 2012, the last movie in his trilogy came out, The Dark Knight Rises. And Christian Bale, in my opinion, was, has been the best Batman of all time. Did an incredible job. I'm not sure if it was his voice or, or what. I mean, like... His voice is just incredible. But anyways, The Dark Knight Rises comes out, and actually my mom and I, we went to that movie after I got off work one night. She's a Batman fan as well. And so we went and checked out this movie. The theater was packed, and we're sitting in this movie, and the movie was great. Batman is defeating this evil dude named Bane. But there comes a point near the end of the movie when in order for the city of Gotham to be saved, Batman has to sacrifice himself. There's this giant bomb that's about ready to go off and all of the other options have been taken out of the equation. And so Batman himself takes the bomb out of the city and then you see this giant explosion out across the ocean. The city is safe. The people are safe, but Batman is dead. At least that's what it would seem. And at the end of the movie, it's one of the greatest endings of a movie that I've ever seen. All of Batman's faithful followers are mourning his death. And the people in the theater, as I was sitting there, there was like a collective gasp. When Batman, the explosion happens and it looks like Batman has died, everyone was just like, like, I mean, just like, this can't be happening. This cannot be real right now. But as the end will show, it turned into a celebration. I loved it so much, I wanted you guys to take a look at it too. Check this out. Prosperous and happy. I see that I hold a sanctuary in their hearts and in the hearts of their descendants, generations hence. It is a far far better thing that I do than I have never done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. You. you trusted me. 
me chills but at the end of that movie as that scene ends and and Alfred is sitting at that little table and as he looks across and you kind of see his eyes perk up and you see the face of Batman I have never heard a theater get so loud in my entire life people cheered people were going crazy they were excited why because Batman was alive they went nuts. People walked out of that theater. They were high-fiving. They were walking. They were like walking with confidence. Why? Because Batman was alive. We're not going to be talking about Batman this morning. But we're going to be talking about how the light night rising, Jesus, come on, <laughs> makes all the difference. Jesus coming back to life makes all of the difference in our world and especially in our lives as Christians and then how we engage the world around us. Jesus being alive is why Jesus is the only way. We're going to look in the the book of Acts this morning. Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. If you you hadn't brought a copy this morning of the scriptures or you would like one, you can just raise your hand and one of our ushers will graciously pass one of those off to you. And then you can actually take that home with you. It's a gift uh, from us that you can have a copy of the scriptures. But Acts chapter 17, we are going to read verses 16 through 18. And if you're there, Acts chapter 17, verse 16, you can stand with me. And we're going to go ahead and read these two verses, these three verses together. Starting in verse 16, it says this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Thanks, you guys can have a seat. So as we look, Paul is going to be basing his entire argument that we're going to see in this passage around the resurrection of Jesus. 
Jesus being brought back to life makes all the difference in his argument that he has with these people of Athens. He, he arrives to the city of Athens, and it says as he was walking around, so he's maybe going around the streets, walking through the market, he immediately is distressed because he sees a city that is full of, of idols. And he sees a people that were living there that were looking for purpose and looking for answers in all of the wrong places. It says it distressed him. He felt this. He hurt for them. He saw that these people were lost. And he knew that the gospel that had changed his life and that he was preaching had the power to save their souls and to draw them to the redemptive purpose that God could have for their life. And so he begins talking with these people. He begins going and he goes to the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks and he encourages their lives and he points them to go out into their communities to engage people with the gospel. And then he goes to the marketplace and has random conversations with anybody who is willing to listen. And a couple different groups of people, they come up to him, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, as we read here. These were people that, they, they, you, in summary, you can say these people thought they had it all together in terms of the, the knowledge department. They thought they were incredibly intellectually sound. The people of Athens, the city as, as a whole, was thriving with academia influences. There was a leading university in the city. People would come from a long, long ways to study in Athens and to receive the latest ideas and theories that were swirling around in the world. And so these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers are certainly not believers. In fact, as they hear Paul preaching the gospel and talking about the resurrection of Jesus... They start muttering to people in the crowd and amongst each other, what is this babbler talking about? He seems to be advocating some foreign gods. The word picture there in the original is as if like Paul was a little bird that was like hopping around, pecking at little pieces of knowledge. And so what they were saying to Paul was, Paul, dude, you don't have it all together. Your knowledge is about that big. You don't have the full picture. You are not wise. In fact, Paul, you are an idiot. It's a pretty offensive thing to, to say to somebody. But as I got through these first couple verses, something stood out to me that's not explicitly even written in the text, but it's the action that follows that reveals to us how Paul handled this situation. Because I don't know about you, but if someone was in my face or around me as I was even just preaching the gospel and they were to say, man, you are an absolute idiot. You don't even have a clue what you're talking about. Jesus isn't real. He didn't resurrect from the dead. The gospel isn't true. This Bible, it's just a bunch of lies. My blood would kind of start to boil a little bit. Some of you could maybe put yourself in that same situation. But Paul, he goes into Athens with the desire to build bridges with these people. And Paul shares this gospel, shares about the resurrection of Jesus in such a way, even in the midst of intense opposition from these people that believed very differently than him. He preaches in such a winsome way, such a compassionate way, that there were other people around that heard what he was saying, and they said, we, we want to hear you talk about this stuff more. We, we want to hear you talk more about this, this, this gospel, about this Jesus, about this resurrection. And as I was reading through this, I was struck, even for myself, how many times... Have I chose to give someone that doesn't believe the same way that I do the stiff arm and say, oh, I don't really want to go into that right now, so I'm just going to kind of keep moving on. How many times have, have we 
kind of closed ourselves off from people that oppose us or have different beliefs than us. I think if we're honest, we've all done that from time to time. And Paul here, he's in the prime position to do that. These guys are ridiculing him like crazy, but he comes to them with open arms. He takes their words, and he chooses to see these people as not wolves to be kicked out. But he chooses to see these people that have very different views than him as sheep without a shepherd, as people that need the hope of Jesus. And he does it in such a way that there were people standing around that their ears were pricked. They were like, wait a second, we want, we want to hear more about this. We, we, we want you to come back tomorrow and we want you to share more about this Jesus. We want to hear more about this resurrection. And it led him to an incredible place that we'll get to. But our current climate today, we are facing as Christians a lot of people in our world that view very differently than what we do. Currently in our world, there's around 630 million evangelical Christians that would testify that their salvation comes by faith through the grace of God by the work of Jesus Christ. Around 630 million people in our world that would would testify to that truth, that would raise their hand and say, that is what I believe. That is who I live my life for and why I live my life. It's because of Jesus. It's because of his work and his forgiveness in my life. Now, there's over 6 billion people in our world currently. So that means that there are over 5 billion people in our world that would view differently than what we believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. There are religions that you've heard of, such as as Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Baha'ism. And there are thousands of different sects and cults that stem off of all of these mainline religions. There are different cults and and sects that that branch off of, of Christianity as well, such as Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and even Seventh-day Adventists, just to name a few. If we were to go into all, every single one of these belief systems, we would be here for years. And I know that you guys have lunch to get to. But the one thing that all of these have in common, all of these religions, all of these belief systems have in common, resides in the fact that in order to reach salvation, in order to reach that, in, that stage of enlightenment, as some would say in certain religions, our work is what ultimately matters. When I was in Cambodia and the team just got back, I went to Cambodia for a couple months while I was in college and I was able to teach an English class to, to 18 through 23-year-olds. As I got to know these kids, and as I was, began kind of preaching the gospel and building relationships with these kids, they would walk around in such, in such fear, in such guilt. Because their belief system was all about them. And all about what either they did right or what they did wrong. And it was this constant rat race. Of, and a constant balancing act of, of trying to do so much good while feeling guilty about all of the sin, all the wrong things that were done. And just wondering like, what is going to happen to me? And for a lot of these belief systems, there's not really a solution. You reap what you sow if you've done enough bad, and if, if you've done some good, then you'll receive some rewards for that as well. But the similarity resides in the human race to do enough good. Now, I don't know about you guys, But I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we all realize our hearts are sick. Our hearts are are wicked. Paul himself, he said that, that he was the worst of sinners. But that's the beauty of the gospel, is that God sees all of that wickedness in every single one of our hearts. He looked into it. He saw it 
and he demonstrated his love for us. That he sent his own son to die on the cross. To do the work that we never could have done. Lived the perfect life and then died up on that tree. So that our sins, if we would believe, would die on that tree with him. There are some religions like Islam that would say that Jesus didn't even die. He was ascended into heaven before he was even crucified. Many scholars, leading um, critics of Christianity, based on the historical documents, would all agree and testify that Jesus did indeed die on a cross. No one is going to argue that in the mainline critic world to this day. The question and the thing that we are building our argument on today is that Jesus is the only way because he is alive today. And that is what sets us, that is what sets Jesus apart from everything else in the world is that he is indeed alive. And that's the confidence that Paul goes off of. That is the truth that Paul is holding into his heart. And that is the avenue, that's the, the, the means by which he has these conversations with these people who are in direct opposition to him. His first chance that he gets, he's not bashing and condemning these people. In fact, he applauds them. Surprisingly enough, he says in verse 22, Paul went to this place called the Areopagus. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. It's fascinating because Paul takes all of that confidence He knows that Jesus is alive. He knows what his gospel is all about. He knows that his gospel is the power of God to save. He knows that God is the creator of heaven and earth and that he is the one true God. And that he knows that when the gospel is preached that God's Holy Spirit will be working and will be pricking. Paul just realizes I'm the faithful messenger that gets to speak it. And then I get to sit back and see what God does. And so he takes that confidence and it's turned into kindness. It's turned into compassion. Because he says, listen, I've been walking your streets for the last few days. And man, I got to tell you, you are very religious people. Like, I applaud you for that. And as I was walking around, I, I saw this one particular altar that you have been worshiping at. And I realized it was to the unknown God. Well, let me just explain to you how you haven't gone far enough. You are ignorant of the one true God, but let me explain to you who he is. Because Paul went into Athens striving to build bridges, instead of at the first chance he got to break the bridge, because he was compassionate, because he was winsome, He was invited into one of the most prestigious gatherings of thinkers in that entire area. They were like, listen, we want to hear you more. (laughs) You seem like a pretty cool guy. We want to hear this gospel that you're preaching. We want to hear about this Jesus. We want to hear about this resurrection. And here he is before this incredible audience of influencers speaking the gospel, preaching Christ crucified in the resurrection He goes on to to talk about who this Jesus is, who this God is, that he is the creator of all. Paul doesn't take offense at the ridiculers. He doesn't take offense to what they're saying to him because his confidence is not in himself. His identity is not in himself. His identity is rooted in Jesus. And because of that, that gives him all the confidence in the world. 
And he gladly opens his arms to all of these people who are fielding all of these different belief systems. I read a book this week called The Unexpected Journey. It's a fascinating book. It's by a guy by the name of Tom Rainier. And Tom Rainier, he goes around to different people all across the country in this book. And he simply has conversations with people who converted to Jesus from other belief systems. And so in this book, he has a a testimony of an agnostic person choosing to believe in Jesus. There's a testimony of an atheist person who chose to believe in Jesus. There's a a former Buddhist, a former Mormon, um, and a former Jehovah's Witnesses. There's many more. But it is a fascinating read. And as I was reading this today, they... uh, or as, as excuse me, this week, one of these stories really captured my heart because as I was looking through this entire book, in terms of how we as Christians interact with non-believers, people that don't believe what we believe, there was one crucial trend. A lot of these people, a lot of these form, that came from former belief systems, they all said that Christians were often very quick to point out how they were wrong. We're very quick to point the finger. We're very quick to want to get into arguments about doctrine and the Bible, which there is a place for sound debate and sound argument. We need to know our Bibles. Sadly, a lot of these people also testified that they could walk circles around most Christians because of their lack of biblical knowledge. But this one particular guy named Paul, he was a former Jehovah's Witness. He was one of the leading elders within his region. And there were some conflicts that arose between him and some of the other elders within this church. And there was some very tight tension. This man named Paul, his daughter was sick. And There was a moment, this moment that I'm going to read to you now, was the moment that pricked his heart, that led him to go down the street to the local Baptist church where he was converted to Jesus Christ. This is that that testimony. Sometime later, Paul heard a knock on his door at home. The woman standing at the door said, I'm your neighbor. I heard you had a sick child. I wanted to make you a meal. Paul recalls that moment. She had a pan of chicken. I just looked at her and couldn't believe what she was saying and doing. The witnesses who were supposed to be my family were treating us like scum. And here was this woman who didn't even know us showing love and concern. I had never experienced anything like this before. I had never seen this type of love before. Paul reflected, I had argued hundreds of times with Christians and pastors. I hardly ever lost an argument. I could tie Christians in knots as I argued around the concept of the Trinity, the celebration of Christmas, and serving in the military. But when that woman came to my home, I could not proof text against Christian love. Short time later, as I said, he walked down the street and had a conversation with a local pastor, and he was converted to Jesus Christ. He's one of the leading elders in his local Baptist church now. And it was all because a woman, a neighbor, chose to see him and his family as a bridge to build and not as a bridge to tear apart and separate from. Started by simply giving a, a pan of chicken, a supper, a meal saying, hey, I I heard you had a sick child. I wanted to help. That kind of kindness, that kind of love was something he had never seen before. Jesus said, the world is going to know you as my disciples by the way that you love. That is what will ultimately set us apart. And so when when, when these people are, are introduced into our lives, we shouldn't see people from different faith backgrounds as, as, as people we need to close the doors to. I understand in certain ways how these Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and others feel when they're walking around our neighborhoods. Before I took the children's pastor job here, I was a car salesman. And 
I was a pretty good car salesman. I enjoyed the job. It was a really fun job. I got to learn how to talk to people. And one of the greatest values and lessons I learned was how to talk to people that (laughs) are very much against me and what I'm trying to sell. And so that has really helped a lot in ways of speaking the gospel. But there were days that I'd be on the car lot, and I'd be sitting, sitting in the showroom just kind of watching the lot, and I'd see a, a family drive on. They're looking at different vehicles, looking to, to purchase one. And so I would just kind of walk out, and it looked like a nice family. They'd be, like, looking in the windows, and they'd be like looking at the tires and all that stuff. And so I would kind of just take a step out. Hey, guys, how you doing? And it was, like, it was like my wave was like sending the plague to that particular family or people because as soon as I would like just extend the hand to wave, it was like, to the car! And then everybody's running to the car and they're getting out of there. There'd be times like I'd walk up to people that were just slowly driving through the lot looking and perusing at the vehicles and again, just extend the hand Hey, guys, shut the windows. Whoosh, windows go up, and they ND 500 their way out of the car lot, okay? Sadly, sadly, that's kind of how we approach people of different faith backgrounds sometimes. We see the Jehovah's Witnesses walking through our neighborhood, the Mormons walking through our neighborhood, and we immediately, we close the blinds. We lock the door. We act like we're not home when they ring the doorbell. Instead of seeing that as an opportunity for us to invite them into our home for a conversation and a cup of coffee. Paul, in this example, was into building bridges with these people. That's what he was about. He was doing everything in his power to build those bridges because he knew that if he could keep building the bridge, that he was going to be able to keep sharing the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a time and place. If we're sitting across from someone that has a contrary belief system and all they want to do is argue and argue and argue, there there is a time and place for us to shake hands and say, you know what, we can agree to disagree. But far too often I feel like we go there before anything else before we've even had a chance to really build a relationship or to get to know them and their story and why and how they ended up believing what they do. And so Paul is giving us an example that is, is, he's calling us, that Jesus is calling us to live by. Because when we build the bridge, it gives us the opportunity to share because we have the greatest message to share. There is no truth like this. This is the truth that sets the standard for everything in this world. Because Jesus came and died and because he rose again from the dead, it makes all of the difference. That is why Jesus Christ is the only way, because he came back to life. Well, how do we know? Why can we believe that? We talked about this actually last fall with our kids. We went through these three different pieces of historical evidence that prove to us why Jesus, in in fact, is alive, why he is resurrected from the dead. Because as I said, leading critical scholars of Christianity will not refute the statement that Jesus died on the cross. That is true. Everyone will agree with you on that. But there will be people that will debate whether or not he came back to life. And so we have to understand for ourselves as Christians, how can we know that Jesus came back to life? First piece of evidence that I would go to, it seems very (laughs) simple and obvious, but there was an empty tomb. When Jesus was, was, was killed on the cross, nobody wanted him dead more than the Jewish leaders that were in charge at the time. Jesus had come into their world and he had flipped Judaism on its head and threatened their very existence as religious leaders of Judaism. Completely was dismantling 
their belief structure and their way of life. And so they wanted him dead faster than they could blink. And when he died, they put him in a tomb and nobody wanted him in a tomb dead forever more than the Jewish leaders. They put two Roman guards to guard the entrance of the tomb. Now the Roman guards... These dudes were elite. They were Navy SEALs. You did not just become a Roman soldier off the street. Years of training. These picture two Navy SEALs standing in front of that tomb. These were tough dudes. And if they were to abandon their post, the consequence was always death. There's historical documents that read that Roman soldiers that had abandoned their post were commonly drugged through the streets until they were dead. That was the consequence of abandoning your post. You never, ever abandoned your post. These Roman soldiers, they would have faced an army, and they would have died trying to stop a mob of people who were trying to get to Jesus' body for some reason. But these Roman soldiers saw something different. They saw something supernatural occur that caused these two elite Navy SEAL type dudes to run for their lives in fear. Nobody wanted Jesus' body out in the open. The Jewish leaders, as soon as if, because the, the, what people will say, well, people just came in, they moved his body. They, they went in, they opened the door, they paid off the guards, and then they went and they moved the body somewhere else. The Jewish leaders did not want even a rumor. They did not even want there to be any slightest room that Jesus' body was actually alive. They would have crushed that notion immediately. They would have put all of their resources into finding this body and punishing whoever was involved in kidnapping it. But they could not find the body. Why? Because Jesus was alive. Second, after Jesus came back to life, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Jesus appeared to over 500 people 500 people at once after he appeared to the disciples. And so there were many, many people that saw the physical risen Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now, psychologists will tell you that hallucinations, they cannot happen with things that you have no prior background with. And so these Jewish people, they had no prior background to a Messiah or a savior figure. And so when these 500 people all saw this physical Jesus, risen Jesus standing before them, it was indeed him. It was not a hallucination. The disciples, they're all wondering, man, is Jesus really alive? And he appears in a room with them. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. Jesus knows they think that I'm a ghost. And so he invites them over. He says, guys, come here. Take your hands and put them in my scars. Touch me. Because ghosts do not have flesh and bone. And here you are feeling my flesh. Thomas, he wouldn't believe until he saw Jesus. The Bible says that Thomas went and he touched. And as soon as he touched and saw that he was a real person, he believed. Because he knew that Jesus had really resurrected from the dead. Lastly, the explosion of Christianity occurred right after the resurrection. Very shortly after Jesus rose from the dead, and he had those appearances with over 500 people, and he ascended into heaven, and he told his disciples in Acts 2, he said, listen guys, I want you to stay put, until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. I want you to be my witnesses in, in Samaria, the region, the state. And then I want you to be my witnesses throughout the entire world. 
and these cowardly, fearful disciples who were in some room after the crucifixion with all the shades pulled and the doors locked turn into the rocks that Jesus built his church upon. Because as these guys began sharing the gospel when the Holy Spirit came on them, Acts records that thousands were added to their number day by day. Christianity exploded. It was affecting everything. If we were to keep reading further here in Acts, there were people that said that the world was being turned upside down because the gospel was spreading and this talk of the resurrection was going on everywhere. That explosion occurred because these men that started it, that Jesus built his church on, were convinced that Jesus was in fact alive because they ate with him, they touched him, they heard him, and they saw him ascend back to heaven. I love Peter. I love all these guys. Every single one of those disciples was martyred for their faith, except for John. Every single one of them went to their deaths, either being beheaded or crucified on a cross because they were preaching the gospel and they would not stop. Why? Because they knew it was the way, the truth, and the life and that everybody needed to hear that message. I love the story of Peter, how he goes from a man who denied Jesus three times as he was being arrested And Peter then is transformed into this man who is preaching the gospel to everyone no matter the cost. The church traditions say that Peter was was martyred by crucifixion. Goes on to say that, that Peter said that he was not worthy to be crucified right way up like his savior was and that he wanted to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to be hung like his savior. How does a man that denies his savior three times go from saying, I'm not worthy to be crucified right side up. Put me upside down instead. How does that happen? Because Peter saw and touched the resurrected king. There are people in our world that will die, that will run their airplanes into the side of a building for something that they think is true. The thing that always stops me in my tracks is that the disciples would have had to die for something they knew was a lie if Jesus really didn't raise from the dead. Nobody's getting hung upside down on a cross unless they know that their savior, that their king is alive and that he is reigning in heaven as God. Because Jesus came back from the dead, it proves to us a couple different things, a couple crucial points If Jesus, because Jesus rose from the dead, because he is alive, it proves that he is God. As Jesus was alive on earth, he testified that about himself. That he was the one true God, sent from heaven, sent from the Father. The second thing that it proves is that this Bible that we hold in our hands is absolute truth. Because while Jesus was on the earth, says that he testified to the disciples going all the way back to the beginning through the prophets in the Old Testament and beyond that the Bible was all about him, how it all pointed to him and his work and what he was going to do. And the night before his his, uh, arrest, Jesus prayed to God and he looked up into heaven and he said, God, I want you to sanctify my people in your truth because your word is the truth. And so because Jesus is alive, because he is reigning as God, 
it proves that we can have absolute confidence and assurance that everything that is written in this Bible is complete truth. And when Jesus speaks those words, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through my work. He speaks not just as a good man or a good teacher. He speaks as the one true God. And he speaks with absolute authority that no one can question. He speaks with the kind of authority that we will see one day when every knee will bow on earth, under the earth, in heaven and below, everybody will bow their knee to Jesus because of the authority he has, because he is alive, because he really resurrected from the dead. And because he really resurrected from the dead, that makes all the difference and gives all of us sitting here a complete confidence as we go out into our world, as we look and have conversations with people of different faith backgrounds, of different belief systems, we don't have to be threatened. We don't have to feel fearful. We don't have to run into defense mode and and shut the shutters and lock the doors. Because we know that Jesus is alive, we can have loving, compassionate, kind confidence as we enter into conversation with people that believe very differently than us. So often, we want to, to, to point the finger and we want to make statements. Well, something that I've picked out of this text is that in the face of opposition or debate, showing compassion to people will bear more fruit than anything else. God will work in the hearts of people And he will save people. Our role is to be faithful ambassadors. Faithful ministers of his gospel. All our job is is simply to share the gospel. He wants us to faithfully share it. He wants us to speak it with confidence and joy. Because we know that the power of God to save is the gospel. And that when the gospel is spoken... His Holy Spirit moves. His Holy Spirit pricks hearts. We see this at the very end of this text. 32, verse 32 and 17, it says, When they had heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. There are going to be people that after we've shown the kindness to, after we have been compassionate to, there are going to be those situations when we just have to, with a smile on our face, say, I love you so much, I care about you, I'm going to be praying for you, we're going to agree to disagree. That's going to happen. There's going to be people that laugh at you, that sneer at you. But make no mistake, there are going to be people that God pricks that will believe. Because the, the gospel, the God's, the, this, this word does not come back empty. It bears fruit wherever it is preached. Our role is to remain faithful. Lesson number two, asking questions and listening to people's stories before speaking into their lives is wise and will build bridges instead of burning them. In the book that I was referencing, so many of these people from all of these different faith backgrounds had the very similar tale that us as Christians were very, very horrible at listening They said we as Christians wanted to be the ones pointing the finger, pointing out all the flaws in their philosophy of thinking or in their doctrine. 
They wanted to make all these statements, but they were horrible at listening. And some of these people in this book say now that they are Christians, the art in reaching people of different faith backgrounds and belief systems is by listening. We have to start by listening. Asking them questions like, what do you, what do you think about Jesus? What do, you, what do you do with Jesus? Tell me, how did, you, how did you get to the place where you decided to be a Jehovah's Witness? Why do you choose to be a Muslim? Tell me about your family. Tell me what it was like growing up for you. Asking questions and having a conversation like a normal human being instead of seeing them as an alien, instead of seeing them as a wolf that needs to be shooed out and put away from us as soon as possible. Asking questions will help us build those bridges with people instead of breaking them apart before we've even had a chance to speak the truth. We can have confidence, absolute confidence and assurance that our faith is the real truth because Jesus died and rose again. And if we build our case on the resurrection, everything else will fall into place. If we build our lives, if we build our ministry on the truth of the resurrection, everything else will fall into place. If we live our lives full of joy and confidence and hope because Jesus is actually alive, that is going to feed in to how we interact with the people in our lives that believe very differently than us. Sitting here today, guys, we have all of the confidence in the world. Like those people, that theater that I was sitting in went nuts because Jesus, or because Batman was alive. They went absolutely berserk by some fictional dude that we were watching on a screen. How much more excited should we be as Christians knowing that we get to celebrate the risen king of the universe that came down and saved us from our sin and is now reigning in heaven for eternity. There is nothing greater than that. And because Jesus is alive, we have a message to share. Because Jesus is alive, he is the only way to the Father. And there is a world out there that needs to hear that message. And there are people that God has appointed in your life that you can think of right now that God has appointed you to share that message with in a very specific way. Can we join him in that process? Amen? We can celebrate that, and we're going to continue celebrating our risen Savior. Because Jesus is alive, Jesus is the only way. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to continue celebrating in song. Would you guys stand with me? Lord, God, we celebrate you. We thank you for your love. You are so good, and because you came back to life, Jesus, you conquered death. You gave us the opportunity to have a relationship with you if we would simply believe that you are the Lord and Savior of our lives. We love you. Fill our hearts with joy and confidence as we remember what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.